Hi, welcome back to Body Truth Podcast. Welcome if this is your first time. I am your host, Caitlin Parsons. I'm a certified intuitive eating body image coach, intuitive eating coach, self-worth coach, (laughs) a lot of coaching things. And I am a storyteller enthusiast, which is exactly why I created this podcast. If you've been in our little podcast family for a while, you may notice that the intro is not in this episode. This is the intro for the show. So you don't have to wait for music to start or anything. This is where we're at. And I'm not really sure if we're going to add the music back in or not. I would love to actually hear what what you want and how you kind of want to decorate our little podcasting home together. So if you have some opinions, please feel free to share Find me on Instagram at Caitlin Parsons. You can slide into my DMs. Tell me, talk to me. I would love to say hi to you in general. Um, But as for now, I'm just going to keep kind of flowing with what feels good. And right now, just leading with an intro that is really grounding and simple feels good. So that is where we're at. I have such an incredible guest on the show today. I have Delina Soto with me, and you might know her from Instagram as your Latin nutritionist. That is how I first found her. Actually, that's not true. I found her on someone else's podcast, and I thought her story was incredible. And I had followed her for a couple of years and was so grateful when she said yes to coming on this podcast and hang out with our community and share her story. Let me tell you a bit about her before we dive in. Delina Soto, M-A-R-D-L-D-N, is a Spanish-speaking registered dietitian. Delina works as one of the few Spanish-speaking RDs in the Philadelphia area and virtually across the country, teaching her clients how to ditch the diet mentality and keep their culture alive. We get into so many interesting interesting things in this particular conversation. Of course, we talk all about Delina's personal body image story, pregnancy, stretch marks, growing up in a large family. We talk about her experience of her, or rather experience is plural of dissonance during her dietitian school and just changing and evolving and um, just creating her beliefs in that experience as well too, which I know if you've listened to this podcast, uh, you might find that as a common theme with so many people who have gone through some form of Uh, formal training, whether it's getting their certification or uh, dietetics degrees, uh, degrees in nutrition or therapy or or different things, and just reckoning with some of the things that are being taught in some of these formal settings um, and discovering kind of what is beyond that in in their own personal research. I certainly experienced that as well too. Uh, we also discuss how Delina supports her Latinx clients in getting out of the diet culture and practical tools for setting your own boundaries when starting to adopt new information around health, super important and something that I know can be really confusing um, when you start to do this work. We talk about cultural effects on health throughout the U.S. history and 
things that are still occurring today, such as food deserts, food apartheids, and um, uh, redlining. Super interesting part of the conversation. At least I felt I felt like it was. I learned so much, and I am just really, really grateful for. Delina's wisdom in this area and expertise. We also discuss racism that that exists within wellness culture, which I think is just so important to continue having conversations around. So thank you so much for hanging out with us today, being open to hearing information like this, stories like this. I want to give a general show disclaimer that is not particular for this episode. I want to start doing this moving forward. And I've thought a lot about this as well, too, because here's the deal. This show was created with the intention to encourage women to take up space. That is my one singular reason why I wanted to bring this to life. Um, and so we also want to acknowledge, I want to acknowledge that everyone's journey is different. and everyone is at a different phase of their journey in terms of how they are building their relationship with their body and learning information about food and how they're applying that in their life, different phases of what they're learning about diet culture and feminism and all of these things. And so I really want to encourage and remind you to first and foremost, take care of you. If you are listening along and feeling activated, if you're feeling triggered, please hit pause, take a breath, know that you can always come back to the conversation if and when you're ready and trust that your intuition is one of the greatest sources of self-care. So pay attention. And also as you're listening and observing your own thoughts, just keep that in mind too. Thoughts are just thoughts. And we also have an opportunity to zoom out and expand what other possible thoughts are there as well. So if you're having a thought about somebody as they're sharing their story, observe that. And that's a part, that's a big skill that we really build in the body image journey, intuitive eating process. I certainly use that when I'm working with clients and uh, actively use that in my own my own work. I'm on this journey for life. So it's it's important to disclaim that as well too. Uh, before we go into the conversation, if you are not already signed up for the weekly newsletter, you can click the show notes and get on it every Sunday. You'll receive an email from me that is filled with a little personal note, reflection questions, inspirational quotes, food and body image resources from books, style, easy recipes, and of course, everything that is happening in this body truth community. So if you prefer email, I particularly love to curate which emails I'm, subscri I'm subscribing to. It's a really easy way for me to just kind of generate the content that I want to keep my eyes on in my life. Um, and that's sometimes really difficult in social media. Uh, then I encourage you to sign up there and you'll get access to it immediately starting on Sunday. Okay. That's it. We'll link everything in the show notes in terms of how you can connect with Delina. I love you so much. If you love this show, please subscribe, rate, and review. That's the 
best way that you can just promote the work that we are doing here and the message that we have and the mission that we are on to really serve women, change the conversation around how we take up space, um, how we are committed to getting out of diet culture and healing our relationship with food and our bodies for deeper levels of authenticity. I will talk to you later. Without further ado, Delina Soto. All right. Delina Soto. Hi. Hi. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited you're here. Let's dive in. And we always ask the same question to everybody on the show, and that's your first body awareness moment. So what did that look like for you? That moment where you realized, I'm in a body, apparently this means something in the world that I'm living in, just paint the picture. And also how did that moment shape your relationship with food and or your body moving forward? Yeah. So I think that I have had an immense privilege of always being in a body that the world considered to be good, right. Or uh, not to be problematic. And because of that, that really, didn't shape much of my childhood or um, even my teenage years. I, again, didn't really think about my body that much. Um, But I think that the one moment where everything shifted was when I became pregnant. And um, it was really difficult for me to understand why I had stretch marks, you know, because I grew up watching, you know, my whole family get pregnant and everybody, you know, around me, my friends, I I had friends already that had had babies and they didn't get stretch marks like I did. Right. And for me, it really ended up really messing with my body image because I, I kept thinking like, what did I do wrong? what was, what is wrong with my body that I have stretch marks that don't just look normal, (laughs) Um, like super deep, you know, super accentuated. You could see them like a mile away. And it wasn't just like on one little bit of my belly. It was like up and down um, above my belly button, like just like literally my whole belly. Um, And in my head, I, I just, it was such a pivotal moment for my body image because I really, you know, never had a struggle before that. I never really cared about how my body looked before that. But um, after pregnancy, I felt like damaged goods. Like I literally felt like I did something wrong that I didn't, you know, put enough lotion on. And, you know, you hear the stories of like, oh, you scratched or you didn't use enough of this or blah, blah, blah. And now I know like, it's just genetic. (laughs) Like I literally did nothing wrong. And I guess the one beauty of social media is that I have been able to see hundreds of other bellies that look like mine and that are embraced. And I often say that, you know, I don't love my stretch marks. I will never probably love them, but they're part of who I am and I am neutral to them. And I think that that's one of the biggest things that if any listener takes away from my conversation today is that body love isn't the like end all be all, like you need to have some neutrality too. Like you can't love every single part of yourself, but I also don't hate them because they gave me you know, the ability to grow my children. And if my body didn't stretch and if I didn't get stretch marks, I would have exploded. (laughs) My skin would have gone. (laughs) Um, 
pretty badly if <laughs> those stretch marks are a way of protecting yourself, right? So I had to kind of like reframe my thoughts around it. Um, I really learned to be neutral with them and not hate them or love them. They just are. Mm. Yeah, I am a big fan of body neutrality. I think when we hear the term body love, it's so confusing for so many people because most of us have spent a large majority of our life feeling uncomfortable with our bodies or like our bodies were a problem in some way or like body love was for somebody else and not for us. And so it can feel really complex. And I think on the journey to body love, one thing to keep in mind is it's unconditional love, which means that you don't have to like it all the time. You don't have to be um, just, you don't have to celebrate it all the time, but it is this form of neutrality and respect that I think is so important to keep in mind on that journey to self-love. So that's so beautiful. I am super curious before you arrived at your stretch mark story, what did your relationship with food and your body look like? Because I, I think it's pretty rare. I know, especially in this community to go through life and have a pretty peaceful, neutral, positive relationship in your body. So what contributed to that? What did your family look like or your social circle look like, or what were you watching? What were you consuming in a reflective period? What do you feel like really facilitated that for you? So odd because I've thought about this so much and I really am like, how was I so sheltered and why didn't the images or um, just other people around me phase me as much? I often joke around that I don't care what other people think and I've always like gone at the beat of my own drum. Like I've never given into peer pressure or anything like that. Like just growing up, I just didn't care. Like if you did something and everybody else was doing it, but I didn't feel like doing it, I'd be like, screw this, bye. Um, I'm not going to be part of this. Um, So I think it really had to do with my personality. And I think as I'm learning from my children, everybody has their own personality and everybody has um, a way of being. And I, I definitely grew up, you know, being the first child of two immigrant you know, parents, and I had to grow up pretty quickly, you know, I had to translate and I had to be, you know, kind of like an adult, um, even when I was a child. So I think because of that, it maybe hardened me a little bit. I was very fortunate that I I grew up with parents that were very intuitive. Um, I don't think, you know, being Dominican, we didn't know what intuitive eating was or anything like that. But uh, I definitely grew up with a family that did not um, care about bodies. Like it was never like a topic of conversation. My mom wasn't outwardly always dieting. Um, she, you know, dabbled here and there, like insulin fast. I mean, like in the nineties, who wasn't having a shake, right? Right. Like it was like the thing. Um, but she never like from me thinking back as a child, I just like never heard her ever. 
um, talk bad about her body or unless it was stretch marks, which I think was why, Oh, that's <laughs> you know, I had so that. interesting. Yeah. 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 Cause she would always be like, I don't have any stretch marks. And she was like, always so proud of that. Like she was so proud that she, that her stomach looked pristine according to her. Right. And she had three children and she had no stretch marks. Um, but I never, ever heard her speak about her body in any way. Um, and the slim fast, you know, was just that, like, I, I don't ever remember it being like, I need to lose X amount of pounds or whatever. I think it was more of like, I'm trying to be healthy because, you know, back then that's what everybody thought. So because of that, I think I was like super fortunate of, um, not having that diet culture imposed on me also because I was a, you know, very thin child, <laughs> very thin, um, you know, my mom always joked around, like I was in the same size for like, you know, I was tall, but I was lanky. So I was in like the same size pants for like years because they didn't, you know, they, they didn't have anything in my waist size. Mm. Um, so I had to wear like the smaller ends. So because of that, um, people never commented on my body. People, you know, never force fed me or um, told me to stop eating. Right. Like in my family, I was always like, oh, she could just eat whatever she wants and she'll be okay. Right. So I definitely grew up with that, you know, privileged, you know, way of thinking because yeah. And the same thing with like my brothers, like nobody ever told us that we couldn't have this, we couldn't have that. And so even in the teenage years, um, you know, some parents of my friends would say things or I would go into their homes and I would hear different things. But like, to me, I would be like, my body's fine. Like, mm-hmm. I don't need to do anything like you know like I just had some confidence that I don't know where it came from but but I just didn't care I just it wasn't something that I wanted to do I I thought it was cool that I could eat Mm -hmm. eat whatever I wanted right um and be Mm -hmm. okay when did um when did diet culture start to come onto your radar from uh, more, more of a professional sense or even a personal sense where you just really started to recognize, oh, this actually is something and it's a problem, even if it doesn't necessarily apply to me in terms of how I'm trying to shape my body right now, but this is something to kind of be aware of when, when was that relevant? Yeah. Um, school. So when I went to school to be a dietitian, I think um, a part of me wanted to be like this perfect dietitian, right? And, you know, I was learning all about nutrition and I wanted to have a perfect diet and I wanted to, you know, eat in a healthy manner. And it was a lot of tug of war, um, within me because I often say like, I drank the Kool-Aid because I would come home from school and tell my mom, like, you can't have this, you can't have that. You just switch this, you just watch that. Um, because that's what I was learning in school. But then as I'm sitting in school, I'm also questioning, well, my mom is one of eight. My family is jive freaking enormous. We all eat the same exact foods, yet we all literally have different body shapes, just like we have different eye colors, different hair color, different skin colors. Like you throw us up against a wall. I have over 50 cousins and you're going to get every single shade of hair, every single shade of skin color, probably. And like every texture of hair, like you're just going to get the gamma. (laughs) Did you Um, say 50, 50 cousins, like five, zero? 
over 50. Yeah. My mom wow. was one of eight. Yeah. That is, that's incredible. Also super fun. And also yeah. really interesting, genetically speaking, like yeah. you're saying, being able to really have yeah. a personal case study for how <laughs> genetics can vary. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they all marry different people too. So, I mean, we literally all look different and we, my grandma would feed us all the same. Our parents would feed us all the same. Like we were all eating straight Dominican food. Um, Which is what, no, what, is, what is Dominican? Yeah, food? How would you so describe it? Dominican food is very Caribbean. So we eat a lot of white rice, a lot of beans, um, a lot of meat. Um, so we eat a variety of meats. Like we eat a lot of goat, um, we eat a lot of, um, oxtail and things that people in America are like, what the heck is that? And it's like, oh, that's pretty normal for us. Chicken, pork, um, you know, just root vegetables are huge. Um, and, and just like, it's, it's, I can't even explain it. It's just like very Caribbean. So if mm-hmm. you've ever seen like a Cuban restaurant, which are a little bit more, I think popular than, um, a Dominican restaurant, they're more of like a hole in the wall or even like Jamaican food or, mm-hmm. um, you know, Trinidadian, well, they have more of like an Indian, um, you know, yeah. mix to it, but it's, it's really much like that, those type of foods that you would think of. Right. Um, and yeah, like we literally all grew up eating these foods and in my head, I'm just like, there's something wrong here. Like, you can't tell me that this is a reason why people are sick when literally till this day, nobody in my family has diabetes. Nobody in my family has, you know, heart disease or anything like that. Cancers, like we have been very lucky. And I think it's because of that, you know, relationship with food that has been cultivated in our little bubble uh, that we just don't have these kinds of, you know, things for now. Right. I can't say that it's going to be forever, but as of now, you know, all my aunts and uncles are super healthy, you know, if we want to even use that word, um, which I don't, you know, I use it, but I think that people need to understand like health is whatever that is to you. It's not like a textbook, you know, I love that. that. Um, so it sounds but, like there was some dis- some dissonance when you mm-hmm. were starting to study this then. So what were some thoughts and new beliefs coming up for you as you were studying like this new version of health and paying all this money for this yeah, as well too? I know, I know. <laughs> it's so hard. Um, you know, a lot of the textbooks and a lot of the case studies and just a lot of the information is very stereotyped. So it would be like the Latins, you know, community, Latino community has a higher, higher chance or incidence of diabetes. And it's because they eat tortillas and white rice and blah, blah. So like you would get all of this information um, from a very stereotypical point of view. The same thing with like the African-American or we should just, you know, Black Americans, right? Um we, we would get that information and it would be like very stereotypical. Um, you know, it's all the salt and the Southern food. Um, and it's like, really, is it really that? Or should we be talking about social determinants? Should we be talking about racial disparities? Like, should we be talking to access to food, right? Um, and again, I come from more of a middle-class family, right? In my family, there weren't a lot of people struggling to make ends meet and like to buy food, right? So that's something that I think I need to point out that like, I grew up in a family that never had food insecurity. And so I definitely always had access to food. And so did the majority of my family. So when we look at that, right, in in comparison to like, other, you know, Latino families, or the, you know, the disbursement of, you know, wealth 
in Latino families or in Black families, that should be something that we should be talking about, you know, that access and the, you know, the pay gap <laughs> Absolutely. Um, that we see. And so I think, you know, there was just a point where I was just like, and then the BMI, like the BMI literally threw me forth. I was like, you, this is bull. Like, I'm done with this. Like this is, that's where I was like, you, this is complete bullshit. Um, okay. Can I ask you a question about that though, yes. before you go into that? Cause I want to hear, I want to get into the BMI and all of mm-hmm. this, but I also heard you say that you were in a phase where you were mm-hmm. researching and reading this information and coming back yeah. and telling your mom, Hey, yeah. we need to change this around and everything. Yeah, yeah. So what was the journey like for you where you actually realized, wait a minute, yeah. this doesn't, this is not right. We need to look at this in a different way. Mm-hmm. Was that in school? Was it after school? How so, did you get to that point? That yeah. Point? So like, basically there's four years of dietetic school. So I want to say like the first two years of dietetic school, I was like very much like, mom, we need to switch with like this. So we need to do that. And like, I was like very much like into this like wellness world but you don't really get to do like the medical nutrition therapy, like the really nitty gritty, like until you're getting closer to graduation. And I think that that's really when it started like falling apart for me when I was like, wait a second, this shit is not real. <laughs> how <laughs> so? so was how like, is it falling apart? Yeah. Because it was like what I just said, all of the things that we were being taught about the food. And I'm like, but wait a second, like my family eats these foods and there's Mm. nobody, you know, being sick about it. So it wasn't until we really got into those classes that I was like, yeah, this doesn't seem right. And like, I think that again, like that BMI was like really what pushed me over. And I was like, yeah, no, this is, this is bullshit. Um, And I think, you know, even then I questioned the fact that like studies weren't really done on us, but I think I just had so many thoughts and processes and things happening in my head. And I still really wanted to graduate and I still really wanted to be a dietitian. And in my head, I was thinking like, I'm just going to save the world. I'm going to cure diabetes and everybody's going to eat rice and beans and tortillas and be okay. Um, Like I was just still very like bushy tailed and like, Mm -hmm. you know, ready to like, just like, take the dietetics world by storm. Um, And still, you know, it was uh, what I often call, like, it's like the fork in the road when you're really trying to figure out um, like this whole like intuitive eating thing or like health at every size thing. It's like, even after I graduated and I still thought, you know, BMI is bullshit. And, you know, I started working in the field that really started propelling me into thinking like, okay, I need to see this differently. But even still then, even when I was talking about like, we can still keep our cultural foods, I was still very much focusing on weight, right? I was still very much using that as an indicator of like health, but not to the strict um, parameters that a BMI uses, right? Like I would be like, oh, don't worry about BMI. Like, but if you want to lose five pounds, let's get you there. Right. Like it was very much like a dissonance, like Mm -hmm. you said, of like, I was still using that as a measurement of health, like weight, but I would always be like, but you know, like we have butts and we have boobs and you know, we're just a little thicker. So that's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, when you were using that as a metric, was it more of like a vanity metric or was it more like based in research uh, or what you thought of research at the time around health and like blood markers and things like that? What was Um, the intention? I definitely used blood markers more, right? And like, I still use them now, right? But in my 
in my education, right? It's always like, well, if we can get people to lose 10% of their weight, right? If we can just get people to lose something, it's going to help, right? So Mm -hmm. I was inevitably restricting people, right? Mm -hmm. I was inevitably telling them, well, you know, how about we just, you know, only use a cup of rice or, you know, like all the things that you hear, right? Everything that you hear most dietitians say, I was saying it, but I was still saying, but, you know, you can still have your foods because we're just going to portion it out, right? Um, And you'll find hundreds <laughs> of oh, dietitians yeah. saying oh, yeah. the same thing, right? Most. Like eat what you want, all foods fit, right? Um, What's the problem with that? Because I think so many people are going to hear this and be like, well, yeah, that's that's what I believe or that's what I've yeah. been told or that's what I feel like I should be working towards. So mm-hmm. in your expertise and your experience, why should people be concerned or curious mm-hmm. about looking at that? Yeah, because we're, we're inevitably restricting, right? So anybody that's going to tell you that they're going to help you lose weight or they guarantee a certain amount of weight loss, they are cutting calories in order to get you in a deficit in order for you to quote unquote lose weight, which we all know doesn't always happen. Um, and so this idea that I have to portion control and I have to like monitor or track or I need to cut a certain amount every single day to see a certain amount of weight loss during the week, right? Um, like I'll even hear people be like, yeah, we're only doing half a pound or like a pound of wheat. And I'm like, but yeah, but you're still restricting, right? And mm-hmm. you're you're not allowing your body to really eat how much it needs or not, or just like, or balance itself out in the long run, right? So I always say like, we're not robots. You can't take one calorie count and disperse it into seven days and say that that's what your body needs because your hormone levels are going to change your activity level, your sleep is going to be different. Like we don't wake up and move exactly the same and have the same levels of everything every single day. So when you learn to connect with your body, you will notice that some days you are more hungry than others. Some days you're less hungry. Some days you are craving more vegetables. Some days you're not. Some days you just want a little bit more carbs. Um, you know, some days you really just want salads because it's hot outside and you just want fresh foods and like, it just, it's what you want. You don't want nothing heavy. Then there's days where it's cold outside and you're like, I really want a soup. Okay. So let's, Let's talk about blood markers a little bit more because I think this is very normal in the culture that we live in. It's mm-hmm. it's a question that most people have that's often confused with the advice that we're getting in different medical settings and just, you know, it's passed on from families, media, it's all around us. So what what do you know that you want other people to know about genetics and blood markers, predispositions to just certain types of diseases that really don't have anything to do with food and how we should be looking at food a little bit differently because of that. Yeah. So genetics plays such a big role in our health. And so when we look at like the social determinants of health wheel, only 30% of our like health is contributed to exercise and diet. That means that the other 70% has to do with your education, your access to food, healthcare, um, where you live, right? Do you have sidewalks? Um, 
your religion sometimes even plays a role into all of this. So like, I don't have the wheel in front of me. I usually have my workbook in front of me and I have my wheel in there. Um, but there's just like so many things, right, that contribute to uh, your health. But genetics is a big one, right? Because if you come from a family that has familial, you know, high cholesterol, that means that like, no matter what you do, you're probably going to have high cholesterol like me, like nobody takes medication. Everyone just tries to manage it with, you know, food and exercise. That's the best, that's the best we can do right now. And eventually I might need, you know, medication and I'm not going to be opposed to it because my body overproduces cholesterol. Right. Um, there's instances where, you know, people just have a family history of diabetes and all you can do, right. Is try to keep it at bay. And then eventually, if something goes wrong, it's not your fault, right? And I think that that's something that, that's what angers me about the wellness world is that it it puts the pressure on the individual. Like I did something wrong. I caused this to myself. It's like, no, people can do quote unquote everything perfect. And you'll hear like, I don't know, who was the biggest loser guy that like dropped out of a heart attack. And he's like, literally the epitome of health. <laughs> like, you could literally try to be perfect and still get sick. So healthism is part of well, wellness culture and diet culture because it blames the individual and says, you did this to yourself. You should have done more. You should have been better. Um, but nobody talks about how stress affects your health and how, you know, that... <laughs> <laughs> Really yeah. Well, I would, I heard up. you just say, you know, really, um, rather than focusing on restricting or just what you're eating, find other ways to help keep some of these predetermined conditions at bay. So stress, like you're saying huge, what else, what are some other things that we should be concerned about that don't have anything to do with food or perhaps do have something to do with food in a non-restrictive way? Yeah, it's about having balance. And I hate using the word balance because I feel like also diet culture has stolen it and the word moderation. But it's literally, if you think of a pendulum, if it's swinging towards both ends, that's not good, right? If you're being constantly really, really good, but then you can't keep it up and then you let go and then you're being really, really bad and you're binging and you're eating, you know, a whole thing of Oreo cookies and you're shaming yourself and guilting yourself. And then you're like, Oh crap, no, I need to restrict sugar again. And you're like going back and forth that causes so much stress to your body and cortisol causes complete and utter havoc. We know that, right? Instead, why don't we just view the pendulum how it always is in the middle? Some days you eat more sugar. Some days you might not eat anything at all. That's sugary, but it's always swinging in the middle in either direction, not like swinging towards the ends. And as long as you're eating variety, you know, having satisfaction with food, which plays a big role in how you digest and how much nutrition you're getting out of it. And the variety also plays a big role in how much nutrition you're getting, right? Um, and then your movement, right? Instead of always having this like burn, 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 I need to burn everything I ate mentality. Movement should be more than that. It should be about mental health. It's, it should be about physical health. It should be about feeling good, right? Nobody likes to be sitting all day and then feeling all your knees are cracking, right? <laughs> but also you don't have to go to the gym. Like there's this idea that like gym is the end all be all of working out. And like our ancestors didn't go to the gym. Gyms didn't exist until like a right. hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. So there's just so much polarizing fear-based information out there that 
you could literally find something fear-based for everything that you you, want to look up. So why not just look at the bigger picture of like, this is the body that I'm going to be in for the rest of my life. Let me just do what works for me. Yeah. Well, and if you, if you are somebody who has a genetic history of diabetes or high blood pressure or cholesterol, can you, can you speak to these things as well too? Because I, I think that what you're saying applies so beautifully to these areas, but it's often confused because when you hear diabetes, you immediately think, well, you can't have any sugar, you can't have any carbohydrates. And so what's the problem with that? And also where does medication fit into all of this and the stigma, the bullshit stigma with medication? (laughs) Oh my God. Yes. Okay. So I always use myself as an example. Like I said, so we have this, you know, genetic predisposition to high cholesterol, not like extreme right now. Um, like my dad and I have it and, uh, and of go figure, right. The dietitian has it. Um, I love <laughs> my it. brothers, my brothers are fine. And here I am like the, the dietitian. Um, so mine is slightly elevated. Every time I go, we monitor it. I don't need medication yet, but I do, you know, exercise for cardiovascular health. I do, you know, add nutrition to my day with like fiber and foods that I know can help reduce my cholesterol. Um, and I just, you know, try to reduce my stress. I, you know, try to just be like normal about it. Like, I'm not going to not have the slice of pizza. I'm not, not going to have the wings, you know what I mean? Um, but I definitely try to add nutrition in my everyday. It's not always at the forefront, but like, I know that oats are fantastic and you can see like all the oats. I, have. <laughs> I eat a lot of oats because it helps. <laughs> um, Does it help? Not, like, um, because oats have beta glucan, which is um, a special type of, not special, but it's a type of fiber that really, really has been shown to reduce cholesterol levels. Um, and so I eat a lot of beta glucan <laughs> to try to help myself. I love that. Um, I love that you're I'm adding going, in. You're yeah, not taking out. In. You're just exactly. adding in the things yes. that support this yes. versus yes. removing the things yes. that quote unquote don't yes. whatever message exactly. is around Yeah. That. Yeah. Or like, you know, exercise is great. Right. But I couldn't exercise for the last two weeks. I had a biopsy in my breast and I couldn't lift and I was in extreme pain. Am I really going to be like, no, I'm going to push through because my cholesterol, no, (laughs) (laughs) you know, two weeks, isn't going to make or break my cholesterol levels. Um, the same thing with, yeah, the same thing with blood sugar control, right? Stress is worse for your blood sugar control than if you had a cookie. I'm sorry that we need to say, but if you're eating a variety of carbohydrates, if you're again exercising because it feels good and you find movement that actually you want to do and it releases endorphins and it helps you feel happier, think of all the amazing things that are happening inside of your body. So if you have a family history of diabetes, instead of restricting, we need to be adding nutrition. We need to be helping you eat enough, have your body feel nourished, have a wide variety of different carbohydrates that you can choose from, you know, have exercise in your day. And if you have to take medication one day, There's nothing wrong with that because now we have science. People didn't have science before. In the early 90s, people were dying, like literally dying because there was no insulin. Mm -hmm. Now we have insulin, right? Yeah, I think it's, 
it makes me so mad just the comparison that we are in with medication right now mm -hmm. and hearing these one-off case studies of I changed this and I got mm -hmm. off my meds and mm -hmm. kind of latching onto, well, if they did that, I yeah, should I be that. able to do that or I couldn't do that or that's like the end all be all. And it's, it's so deeply problematic because yeah. as we're talking about, like genetics plays such a yeah. huge part in this, as well as all these other uh, determinants of health yeah. that have nothing to do with food. So yeah. let's talk about culture a little bit more because mm -hmm. I know, I mean, your, your business and your social media really speaks to the Latin culture. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I'm so interested in how you support your clients in getting out of the diet culture in a um in a very like communal cultural to begin with like it's very family oriented very um just together that's yeah. that's my impression very together so my, imagine all 50 cousins together <laughs> yeah so that's kind of where i'm i'm going i mean i I was exposed to this a lot. I come from a, like a very white family, but I also <laughs> grew up in central Florida where we were exposed to a lot of um, Latin influence and just yeah. Hispanic influence. And so that's something that I really picked up on just how close the families are, especially around food as well too. Mm -hmm. So my question is, how do you advise your clients to set their own boundaries when they're starting to really adopt this new information around health and getting out of diet culture and all of these things, what comes up in your line of work and how do you educate around that? Yeah. Well, it's really hard because in Spanish, we don't even have an actual word for boundaries. And so that's so funny. <laughs> Somebody else it, told me that too. Yeah. That's so interesting. Like we don't, I mean, there is like now people translate it, you know, now because everything in the internet and everyone is writing things in Spanish and in English and the go-to is poner limites or set limits. That doesn't fly. It does not <laughs> communicate the same way. Um, and I think that it's really what I teach my clients is that like they learn really a solid foundation for nutrition that then they can take and say like these are the foods that we're eating and this is the nutrition in it and we don't have to change it and we don't have to change who we are and I think like we really discuss about how like sometimes you know we live in multi-generational homes and there's a lot of generational trauma going on and sometimes it's about learning that you have to set the boundaries for yourself and you can't you know really expect everybody to be on board and there's a lot of like you know different ways to navigate it depending on your family structure and what's going on um, but for the most part, right, if you're really open and honest with your family about what you're doing, most people are like, oh, so you're eating better and you're moving more like cool, right? Like if you're able to say like, yeah, I'm doing all of these things that you want me to do. <laughs> um, and just because I don't look a certain way, it doesn't mean that I'm healthy. And I think that, or that I'm not healthy, um, I think it, it's starting to change the dialogue and it might take a while, but a lot of people do catch on and it does start shifting the dynamics in the family. And it's really wonderful to see too, like just how a lot of these, you know, chulas as I call them are able to like be that first person in their family to really just like sprinkle that information. And again, 
diet culture is like the water that we're all swimming in. So we're not always going to be perfect. And there isn't always going to be a perfect response to you or, you know, some people might not be on board with you, but that's fine. Because if you feel good now, why would you go back to doing something that, you know, made you feel like complete and utter shit? I think like, that's what people realize is that like, I feel so good. I have so much freaking energy. I can do all the things that I love to do. And I'm just not going to let someone's comment derail me because I, I know the difference now. And I think that that's one of the, the key moments. And when things shift with four people is that like, they realize like, how good they feel and they don't want to go back. Yeah. The intention is different. Yeah. Compounded with just the information and the education. Mm -hmm. I think that's so powerful. And I, I see that a lot too. I love that. What are the, would you say like, what are the two questions that you get asked the most right now, whether it's through clients or your community, what, what are like the buzzy topics or things that seem to be surfacing the most? Um, I think the one that we're always discussing and like my page really usually talks about is like how our cultural foods is quote unquote, not healthy. So, or it doesn't have enough vegetables or it's all fried. Um, so I'm always like dismantling that. And, yeah. Uh, and Can you dismantle it here? Yeah. Dismantle it here. So let's just talk about it. What, how would you address? Yeah. So I think that a lot of people assume that vegetables and what our plate needs to look like is my plate, right? Like you should have make half your foods or half your plate fruits and veggies, and then a quarter, you know, protein and a quarter carb, but that's not how Latino people eat. All our food is mixed. Um, a lot of the times our veggies are blended or cut up super small. Um, we don't eat kale. That's not native to our countries. Neither is broccoli. Um, but these are all the buzzy superfood foods that a lot of people assume we should be eating, right? Like when you look on Instagram and you, you know, just type in healthy foods, what are you going to see? A sea of green. Everything is green. Our foods are not freaking green. They're brown. They're white. And they're a mush of a lot of ingredients because we don't cook with single ingredients. Like literally there's like sometimes like six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 ingredients just to make a sauce. Okay. <laughs> like, and so we've been brainwashed to believe really, there's no other way to think about this, that we need to have these vibrant, colorful dishes, green and set up and separate plates and everything has to be, you know, not touching and like whatever. But when we talk about our dishes, which I do a lot of with the people that I'm working with, we break down the ingredients and we talk about the nutrition. And I'm like, so if this dish is giving you the fiber and the nutrients and vitamins and all that stuff, but it's green. And then we look at your dish and it's brown. And it's also giving you all that vitamin fiber and nutrients. Why do we have to change? Like, why do we have to change what we're eating for that? Right. And my biggest pet peeve is like white rice and beans gets, you know, told to Latino families, like, do not eat it. It's horrible for you. But if a freaking vegan walked into, sorry, if a vegan walked in, no, <laughs> I was thinking that in my mind too. I mean, it's the, it's like the classic dish it's the classic that's recommended vegan dish. to vegans. Yeah. Yes. So why the double standard? Why the stereotype? Mm-hmm. Right. It's a perfect protein. It's a full protein. It's so nutritious and they live off rice and beans, but the little abuelita that goes to the doctor and has diabetes, the first thing out of their mouth is stop eating your rice and beans. Mm -hmm. Why? Why can't the vegan do it? But the abuelita can't. Yeah. It's, it's just so, 
eye-opening how you're describing all of this. It's really just making me think how racist the wellness culture is. And I don't, I can't remember if we've had discussions like this specifically on the podcast yet before, but it's something that I've really explored on my own in the past couple of years. And I'm so glad we're talking about this because it is so important and it is so interesting how we get into this comparison, this comparative culture, us versus them and not being enough. And also what you talked about before, just all of the other social determinants of health. And we somehow are comparing everything to what Instagram is deeming as classically healthy. <laughs> I know it's, it's unfortunate because I mean, there's no other way around it. Like, you know, there's just, you know, I don't know if I can say white supremacy. Some people get, really, yeah, you know, say it. Say <laughs> you know, some people, some people are like, don't say that word, but it is what it is. Like, yeah, totally. There is a hierarchy um, and everybody is going towards that hierarchy. I mean, like I was just in DC for Martin Luther King day and we had like a, you know, a very intimate conference um, of food communicators from around the country Um and it was all based on this, on like literally racism in our food system and mm. in our education. And as dietitians, a lot of the white dietitians like walked away from that four days and they were like, holy shit, I've been racist and I didn't even know about it. And one of the biggest takeaways for a lot of them was my friend Shauna Spence. If you don't follow her, you should. The nutrition tea. Aha, I'm just pointing yeah. her in. Um, She's she did awesome. She did we'll link her in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. She did a presentation and I think she did a post about it recently to talk about the presentation, but she talked about the Mediterranean diet. We all talk about the Mediterranean diet, right? It's like content. It's like the one diet. Yeah, everybody's, but who's in the Mediterranean Sea? Africa? and a bunch of other countries but we only talk about the four white countries that touch the sea we talk about italy greece france um, oh so, so interesting we we still right talk about the mediterranean diet but we're not talking about the colors of the mediterranean diet we're just elevating the white countries and we're not talking about the Mediterranean as a whole, which they use a lot of the same ingredients, right? Because that's like the area and you know, all the, the ingredients are like the same, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we're going to talk about the Mediterranean diet, like we need to be talking about all of those countries and we need to be talking about all of those foods because that area is the one that you're elevating and the other countries also have those same foods. So um, it was very eye-opening for a lot of people there. <laughs> yeah. You know, with, as you're talking about this, it's so interesting too, how, how much, how much research is out mm-hmm. here on the benefits of community and mm-hmm. how, mm-hmm. and how it's not even in the conversation <laughs> when it comes <laughs> to health in most cases, because we really reduce it down to yeah. just how we're eating and how we're mm-hmm. moving our bodies. But I mean, even look at the Mediterranean Mm -hmm. cultures. It's really, really integrated in terms Mm -hmm. of community and family and relationship. And Mm -hmm. that has such a strong impact on our health. I mean, 
the studies with how children are raised and in yeah. terms of their health and how much physical touch and affection they're getting. I mean, there's just mm-hmm. so many case studies that really influence um, just yeah. health and, and how we are actually bonding with people. And yeah. it has nothing to do with food either. No, it's just, it's sad. It's, it's sad because we have such an individualistic approach to everything um like I just have such a gripe with public health campaigns because it's always like if you don't do this you're gonna die and this is your fault and you did this to yourself kind of like campaigns right you didn't eat enough fruits and vegetables you know and it's like "Mm, yeah can we talk about that because like again access and again why is it that the United States is you know the richest country in the world supposedly I don't even know if we are anymore but like why is everybody struggling like why are so many people struggling with food you don't see that in a lot of other nations mm-hmm. like people rub shoulders at the markets like I have clients that live in Texas that go to Mexico to buy food mm. they cross the border to buy fruits and vegetables because there's nothing in their neighborhoods Mm. So how is that okay? Yeah. So for everybody who's listening, this is an example of a food desert, mm-hmm. right? Or food apartheid is what food we're apart- calling it now. Yeah. So can you, well, can you explain why yeah. we're calling it that now yeah. and also what it is? Because I don't think we've ever talked about this before. So yeah. can you educate? So a food desert or a desert in essence is something that occurs naturally, right? So when we say that it's a food desert, we are saying that it's naturally occurring as opposed to when we say a food apartheid, it's something that was created because of a lot of redlining. There's a lot of, you know, systemic racism and issues that go into play. Um, Just think about redlining. If you don't know what redlining is uh, back in the early 60s, I would say 50s, maybe, um, they started redlining neighborhoods and saying, you know, this neighborhood has low income people, this neighborhood has higher income people. And so there's a lot of this like redlining in a lot of communities across the country where then supermarkets will be like, oh, we don't want to go into that zip code because they're not going to make us a profit because they don't have enough money to buy our food. And so because of this, we now have created where, you know, in DC, I was, I'll use DC as an example, because I was literally just there. This information is in my head and Philly is just like this. And I'm from Philly, but there's the, uh, I forgot the river's name, but (laughs) we were in Georgetown and is it Delaware? No, it's called Acidon. Oh, I'm going to mess I, up. I don't ask me. I'm so bad. So, no, I don't want to butcher it. I don't want to butcher <laughs> it. But if you look at Georgetown, uh, where all of the like, uh, you know, affluent people live, um, you can literally drive by like seven supermarkets in like two miles. I think he said it was something ridiculous, but then you Across the river, literally across, you could see them across the river. There's literally the first supermarket broke ground um, in in like like this year or something, or maybe it just opened wow. up. So the the age difference of death is about 20 years. So people, the 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 death gap is literally about 20 to 25 years because the people that don't have access to food are dying younger than the other community that has access to everything, right? Um, there's, you know, and you have to think about it, like these lower income communities get pushed into these redlining spaces. Um, and then there's less, like, you know, there's less, there's less access to be able to like get better paying jobs. Like they're primarily black and brown communities. And that's the other thing. Um, and it has to do with like, 
segregation. It, it just, I, I mean, there's so much, I don't have enough time to break it down, but like you can, you could Google this and like find yeah. out like what, it's, what happened in our history. This is the history of the United States. Yeah. And that's have still occurring today. Yeah, yeah. And it's still occurring. Yeah. There's so much redlining still going on now. Um, you can go to a bank and try to get a loan and they'll look at your zip code and that affects whether or not you get the loan. Yeah. This is, uh, this is something that I um, just, realized in the past couple of years too with this type of research and especially just with all of the things going on from the social justice and Black Lives Matter perspectives and all of these things. And it's, there's just so much here and it really does influence um, our health health disparities. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, like a 20 age difference. That's insane. Yeah. Life expectancy, life expectancy difference. That's the word I was looking for. (laughs) Yeah. So, I'm curious, in your opinion, just digesting all this information, what can we do to make a change? What can we start doing in our own cultures to make a change? Um, Even if it's how we are making choices about our own health, but also how we can change the system as well too. Do you have any ideas? That's a loaded question. Um, I think that, you know, if we all speak about it, if, if you have the, the bandwidth to talk to your representatives to, you know, th- it, it all has to start from the bottom, honestly, and, and changing a lot of these laws that are still in place. Um, so if you want to make that, of course, change, you can talk. I mean, I talk about it every day. I mean, my whole story today has been about that, um, <laughs> literally. Um, and, you know, I think if, if you want to change yourself and, and your view about this, um, you know, I'll plug in another book that I think is amazing. It's called Fearing the Black Body oh, by yeah. Sabrina Strings. And it really takes you through the history of fat phobia, anti-Blackness, um, it's dense. It's, it's dense. <laughs> you know, it's really hard to read because it's, it's like really, a textbook. It is. It's very scholarly because she is a scholarly person. She's an amazing <laughs> professor. Um, but my favorite part of it is the, the second half of the book, which is called The American Aesthetics, right? And it really digs into how America has shaped the wellness world and a lot of what we think about health now mm-hmm. um and it all has really screwed up <laughs> reasons behind it um it's a great great book if you want to just like dip your toes and and yeah. learn about it uh, and then also, you're going to want to fight because when you read that you yeah. can't look back <laughs> i i mean it, it it makes so much sense when you are exposed to information like that because it's mm-hmm. also like she's a fabulous researcher Mm -hmm. she's not just bullshitting in a book like she she sources every single thing yeah Yeah. and for anybody listening who is not in a place where like that feels more like a should than a want I would also recommend just google Serena Strings Mm -hmm. listen to her on podcasts listen to her on YouTube interviews she talks a lot about what she actually writes in that book too. And so you can still get information and also follow Delina too. Like you, I mean, seeking out people who are actively talking about this regularly and getting education and, you know, questioning things on your own. Like that is, that's so important too. I mean, I, I think it's amazing that you are committed to actively doing this work and, um, yeah, I mean, that inspires so much change in itself. Yeah, that's all we can do. <laughs> Literally yeah. all we can do. 
So, um, I don't even know where to take this conversation because <laughs> I feel like we took so many different turns. Yeah. Well, in terms of how you actually are supporting people in your community now, what is the best way to get involved? Where do you see your community going? Because I've watched you from, you know, different perspectives and um, I've seen so many like turns that you've taken and everything. What, what's next? Yeah. I mean, I'm still going to be on Instagram talking about this. I often say like, nobody put me on a pedestal because I'm also learning and I might fuck up one day and say something that's not okay. And I'm going to learn from that mistake and, and keep going, but I can't, you know, sit around and stay quiet about a lot of the issues that are affecting because I have two kids and I want them to live in a better world. Like I don't want my daughter who's seven, who's already dealing with a lot of this at school because kids are talking and, you know, people are saying things like, I don't remember this when I was in school, but she's dealing with it now. And it's so heartbreaking to have to like undo a lot of the things that she's listening or hearing at school. Um, and yeah, I just want to leave this world a better place than it was for me, for my kids. Mm, I love that. And I think it's so powerful. I don't have kids, but I have so much respect and have a fire under my ass for the next generation <laughs> of people too, like boys, girls, you know, all all of them, you know, I think that it really does start, um, start with how we show up and influence them. So I am so grateful that you're doing this work. I learned so much in this conversation. Where can everybody find you? Um, if they want to learn more and just get plugged into your community, we'll link it in the show notes too. Yeah. So I am most active on Instagram. So you can find me at your.latina.nutritionist, um, on TikTok. I am a little bit more fun. (laughs) (laughs) Which is what TikTok is for. TikTok (laughs) is just like dancing. Um, And it's the same. You're a Latina nutritionist without the dots. Um, And yeah, you can just go on there. You can download a lot of free stuff. You could read the blog. You can listen to the podcast. I have my own podcast with my friend, Melissa. Uh, It's called Break the Diet Cycle. So yeah, there's a lot of information on there. Are most of your clients um, from the Latin community? Um, yes, but we, I, I, you know, anybody can work with us or join my membership, uh, just know that we're speaking from a Latinx lens and we're talking about a lot of these things that we talked about today. And, um, if you're willing to learn and listen and, you know, be in the space with us, um, you can come along. I think that's amazing. And I, I just want to say, I'm so grateful that you are creating a space like that because it is a super, it's it's super niche down and niche, neat, niche. How do you I say don't that? Know. Niche, niche. I don't <laughs> niche. even know. I don't even Whatever. know how to pronounce it. It's really specific. And it is so important to have communities where we can feel really safe just yeah. with our own like yeah. experiences. And so whether you are from that background or, you know, interested in learning more from cultural perspective and all the things that we talked about today, um, I'm just so excited that you are creating that. So thank you. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your story. Um, We'll link everything in the show notes and I can't wait to just continue following your journey and learning more from you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. That's our show. 
thank you for spending time with us today. Our show producer is Stephanie Olea. Shayla Anderson is our community manager. For more information around healing your own relationship with food and body image, click the show notes and you'll find direct links to our guests plus resources and more. If this conversation resonated with you, please leave a review and share it with a friend so that we can continue to heal and empower these important topics around our relationship with food and body. Sending you so much love, confidence, and strength. I'll see you next week for another episode.